So as you're in Mark chapter 7, let me ask you a question. If you could hear Jesus say one thing to you today, what would it be? Now, pause button. It can't be well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, that's coming later. We all want that. That one's a given. But right now, in this moment of your life, what is one thing you would like to hear Jesus say? Now, don't say it out loud. Don't, don't say it to me. But, but what would you like to hear Jesus say? What would you like to hear Jesus say to you in this very season of your life? What would it do for you this morning if, if you heard Jesus say these words? Wow. I am super impressed with your level of faith in this season of your life. I am super impressed with your level of faith in this season of life. That could change a lot of things for us, couldn't it? could do a lot for us to encourage our faith and our, our belief. Well, this morning we're going to look at a moment in a woman's life where Jesus did just that. He referred to her as a, a woman of, of great faith, and she wasn't even Jewish. She's, a, as we'll discover, a Gentile, uh, not even a part of yet having been engrafted in. And yet Jesus refers to her as a woman of great faith. The Bible talks to us a lot about faith throughout the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. The Bible talks about weak faith, strong faith, bold faith, rich faith, abiding faith, steadfast faith, dead faith, precious faith, common faith, and little faith. It talks a lot about faith. What's interesting about today's event and encounter with Jesus is this woman is a Gentile, and if you recall, even already in our study, we, if you're new to us here today or online, uh, we've been studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark, and today we find ourselves still again in chapter 7 at this point in our study. But we've already seen in, in the Gospel of Mark how Jesus uh, chides the disciples about their weak faith or their lack of faith. And in fact, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's five occasions where Jesus uh, rebukes or, or, or uh, corrects or, or uh, speaks into the disciples, his closest associates, about their lack of faith. And yet this morning, he compliments the faith of a, of a Gentile woman. You see, faith is important, it's imperative, and dare I say it's even impressive to God. You say impressive? Yeah. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, say it with me, it is impossible to please God. Faith is important to pleasing God. Faith is imperative if we want to please God, and to please God means faith impresses Him. He's impressed with our faith. And it's important in our walk with Him. It's important to receiving His activity, His provision, His, His presence. Faith is important to everything God is going to do in your lives, even beginning with your salvation. So as we move into Mark 7, verse 24 here, before we get there, let me, let me set the text for you just a little bit. Both Matthew and Mark record this event that we're about to read and, and study through. Remember, Mark is the, the gospel of immediacy. Remember, the, the most popular word Mark uses is the word immediate. 42 times we're even going to see he uses it in, in this event today. 
So everything's immediate. He's kind of the Reader's Digest version. He's giving, he's moving, moving, moving from this to this to this. So he doesn't give a lot of detail. Matthew fills in a lot of the blanks about this event we're about to read. Mark gives us the big overview. Matthew kind of fills it in. For time's sake, we're not going to read both Matthew's and Mark's account. We're going to read Mark's account because that's where we are focused in studying through. But I will, I will interject things that Matthew reveals about this same event as we go through it. So we'll be going back and forth. So Jesus leaves, and he, he leaves uh, Capernaum, where he's been ministering for quite some time. And he, he, he steps out into the area of Tyre and Sidon. You've heard of those in the Old Testament. Uh, you hear Jesus talk about uh, if Israel, if Jerusalem had repented, or if the, if the people of Tyre and Sidon had repented, they would receive a better reward than the people of Jerusalem because Jerusalem wasn't repenting. And, and Tyre and Sidon is, is a very evil place. That's what upset the religious leaders when Jesus would make a statement that they would perhaps make heaven before the Jews would is because they knew it to be a very evil place. This woman is born in that area. She is referred to in the scriptures as a Syrophoenician. That area of Tyre, Sidon would be what is today modern Lebanon. Jesus travels there and it, it's a very pagan culture. It's saturated in idolatry, temples to false gods. Now remember, the last two weeks we have seen Jesus dealing with the issue of religion and legalism and, and, and holiness by works. Remember, and he was being rebuked by the, the Pharisees because his disciples didn't ceremonially wash their hands and, and do what they were supposed to do uh, to be holy in washing their hands. And now... No Jew, no, no devout, law-abiding Jew would travel to this area because those people are unclean. And Jesus walks straight into this area. He's hoping to go and find this place of rest. Remember, all the way back in Mark chapter 6, he sent him, the disciples across the lake to get some rest, and he planned on meeting them. When they got there, there's this huge crowd. He ends up teaching, and then he ends up feeding all of them with the loaves and the fishes. Goes back to the other side, and he's met by all these people again. And he, just, he has yet to find that weekend of R&R that he's been looking for. And crying now. But in Mark chapter 7, we pick up now with Jesus in this area of Tyre and Sidon. And we begin in verse number 24, where it says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, uh, yet he could not be hidden. There he is. He's trying to find this getaway. He's gone to a little bed and breakfast there in Tyre and Sidon. And it says, but immediately, everybody say immediately. Immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And we all think, did he really just call it Jesus? Just call this woman a dog? Uh, apparently he's referring to dog, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come back to that. But he answer, she answered him, Yes, Lord. Notice she's a Gentile, but she says, Yes, Lord. 
Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You can hear the mic drop. And he said to her, For this statement you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found the child lying in bed and the demon was gone. Now Matthew tells us that, no, so Mark right here says, uh, Jesus says, for this statement you made. Matthew tells us, Jesus says, because of your great faith, you can go. Your daughter is healed. So the title today of our teaching is Great Faith. And we're going to look this morning at some of the things people with great faith understand in relation to Jesus and his interaction in our lives. Four things people of great faith do. The first one is this, they pray knowing that Jesus can. Everybody say can. They pray knowing Jesus can. Mark tells us that immediately this woman fell at Jesus' feet. If we want to fill in some of the backstory to this, Matthew tells us that she approached Jesus, not first falling at his feet. First she approaches Jesus and calls out. There's a crowd around him, and she calls out for, for help. And apparently, according to Matthew, Jesus continues on without saying anything. Then, Matthew says, she came up and fell at his feet. So she's approached him. He seems to ignore her. And then she falls at his feet. She is approaching Jesus in, in absolute desperation. Matthew tells us that she was crying out to Jesus. And the word he uses there in crying out literally means screaming. So some would look at her and say, well, she's, she's lost her mind. Are we sure the daughter's the demon-possessed one and not maybe the nut doesn't fall far from the tree kind of thing? And she's making a scene to the point that even at one point the disciples in Matthew, Mark doesn't tell us this, but Matthew tells us the disciples looked at Jesus and said, would you just send her away? Would you just send her away? She's creating a commotion. But she understands something about approaching Jesus. And really, friends, that's what prayer is. Prayer is approaching Jesus. It's about communion with Jesus. And so there's, there's two keys to her approach right here this morning about her prayer. One, she brings her need to Jesus. Now, she's a Gentile. Jesus has not been through that area before up to this time. How does she know Jesus can cast out demons? Well, she's heard. In fact, when you have Jesus go across the lake with his disciples, and they're supposed to get that R&R, &R, and there's the big crowd they end up feeding, if you go back and read that, it tells us that there were people from all different regions, including people from Tyre and Sidon, who were there. They come home, and they start telling what they saw, experienced, and heard. So she brings her need to Jesus, knowing nobody else has helped her. Every incantation and every form of any type of help, she has sought out for relief for her daughter. Now, now keep in mind what we understand through the Gospels about uh, individuals who are demonized. And, and, and so often it's, it's violent. So often the demons are harming the, the person that they have, have taken over their bodies and their capacities. And they're, they're harming them and they're doing them danger. Remember the one guy came to Jesus' disciples and said, the, the demons throw my son into the fire. So whatever way, somehow these demons in harassing this young girl, mom is desperate for this girl to find relief and help. 
Jesus is in town. She hears about it. She's heard about Jesus. Let's give this a shot. But here's what's beautiful about her great faith is she doesn't know Jesus, but she's going she's gonna to come to Jesus. She's going to approach him. She's going to bring her need to Jesus. Now, that's great faith for a woman who doesn't know Jesus. And, and, and here's something that's kind of a, uh, it's, it's just kind of a, maybe a, a cloud over, over us as, as Christians is sometimes we don't bring our needs to Jesus. Sometimes we're not nearly as interested in approaching Jesus with the need as we are about just trying to fix it ourselves, right? We've got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. After all, we are Texans, right? And great theologians, those who have studied these things, who have researched it in the modern church, who know far more than I do because of their scholarly knowledge and education, they have discovered this one truth. It's profound. That one truth is this, that 100% of the prayers you do not pray go unanswered. Whoever knew, now you know. 100% of the prayers you do not pray go unanswered. James would tell us in, in his writing that we have not from God because we ask not from God. And when there's opportunity for prayer, a lot of times we just say, well, God's going to figure it out. Yeah, he will. He's, well, let me tell you, this. he's already got it figured out. But you want to get it from there to here? You're going to have to stop. You're going to have to approach him. You're going to have to let him know you know he has it figured out. And that you're going to trust him to work it out for you. So she brings her need to Jesus. The second cool thing about her great faith is she prays to Jesus is this. She doesn't quit. She doesn't give up. Matthew tells us, well, Mark told us too, that she begged Jesus to heal her daughter. Now, we're pretty dignified when we pray, and we, we would never think about begging Jesus for anything. But that word beg literally means to be persistent. You could almost say she bugged Jesus. Do you bug Jesus? Not with your attitude. <laughs> Some of us may bug Jesus more than we realize just because our attitude stinks or something. But I'm talking about, do you, do you bug Jesus? Do you, do you stay do you stay in prayer with him? Do you, do you keep the need in front of him? I've heard people say, well, you know, it's, it's faith. In the Word of Faith movement, they'll tell you, you pray about it and then you leave it. Well, we're going to talk about waiting, but, but I find nowhere. That's in complete contradiction to what Jesus taught. Jesus talked about persistence in praying. He told the story of the widow who was being harassed by her creditor, or her, debt, her creditor, debtors, creditors, whoever it is that she owed money to. And she goes to a judge, the unjust judge, who doesn't even know God, Jesus says. And because she kept coming back and pleading her case, he finally, to get rid of her, he gives her justice. He tells, uh, he tells the story of uh, the, uh, the, 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 the man who calls out to Jesus, or calls out to his neighbor. He, he, he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's got friends that came over, whatever. They were out 
Mardi Gras or whatever, and it's middle of the night, and they come over to his house, and, and the hospitality says in the Jewish culture, you feed a friend when they come to your house. You, you entertain them. He's got no food, so he goes next door. It's the middle of the night, wakes his neighbor, bangs and bangs and bangs on the door, and the neighbor keeps saying, go away. I'm asleep with my family. Go away. You're waking up my kids. Go away. Finally, he gets up and gives him some food to give because of the persistence. This is Jesus telling these stories. What about the four men who couldn't get their uh, lame friend to Jesus so they persisted to the point of cutting a hole in somebody's roof? Mm-hmm. Try to get American Home Shield out on that one next time. There was persistence. There's this great privilege that we are given in Christ Jesus to have an audience with God Almighty. The God for whom all things have been created. The God who is God over everything, who spoke from nothing and it came into being. That God gives us permission to have an audience with him. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 verse 16 says this, Let us then approach God's throne of grace, say it with me, with confidence. Now pause for a moment. With confidence, not cockiness, not arrogance. That word confidence means to be bold, to be assured, to speak with directness. Our confidence is not that we deserve to be before the throne of God's grace and expect anything from God, except that the blood of Jesus Christ has redeemed us, and we are now given the name child of God. I've told you this before, one of my favorite favorite pictures that just speaks volumes is that picture of President Kennedy. And I think that's John underneath it. One of the kids is underneath his desk in the Oval Office. Most powerful man on earth in the world at that time in the most powerful office where world affairs happen and his son's playing under the desk at his feet. God welcomes us into his presence. Now notice as it goes on, it says, with confidence, so that we may have mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In other words, he invites us to come and to ask, to just be point blank with him, sincere and genuine. The greatest privilege we have is this audience with God. Notice how the message states that. So let's walk right up to him. And get what he is ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. Accept his help. The greatest privilege is this audience with God. So James 5 tells us what it is praying with faith. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and he's being specific, you're praying about wisdom, but it's prayer in general. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Watch this. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So James says, look, here's how you approach you, you, you approach him with faith, not double-minded. If you're double-minded, he says, you can't expect the prayer to be answered. 
So to be double-minded would be approaching God with faith, knowing God can, and then turning around and walking out and wondering if he really can. Wondering if he really will. God, I know you can, can heal me. But I don't know if you want to. I don't know if you will. I, or, God, I know you can heal me. You're praying this great prayer of faith, and then you walk out and you tell your friends, yeah, I prayed about it, and he's not done anything. I don't, I don't think it's working. That's double-minded. That's double-minded. James says, no, you gotta, you got you to gotta go in faith. And that's what the rest of these truths from this Phoenician woman today are about. They are about that faith, waiting, speaking, and going. We pray knowing that Jesus can do it. How do you approach Jesus boldly? Well, first you've got to go to him. You've got to go to him. She goes to him. She sought him out and brought her need to him. Do not, do not hesitate to pray and take your needs to the Father. Don't hesitate. Don't, don't give him the opportunity. Secondly is worship him. She fell at his feet. She called him Lord. Give him worship. Acknowledge that you know who he is and what he can do. Thirdly is be honest with him. Be genuine. Don't put on some air about you. Don't put on some big theologically memorized prayer with these big, deep theological words in it. What'd she do? She cried out. She screamed and she begged. You say, well, pastor, I'm more dignified than that. Well, you might be right now. But when the situation gets desperate enough, desperate people call out. Be honest with him. Be genuine with him. And then lastly, don't stop asking. Don't stop asking. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said these words. Now, I'm reading it to you from the New Living Translation because it, it more accurately it more accurately gives us the, the, the true meaning of the word keep. In the NIV, it would say Keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. But in the Greek, it literally means keep on. So Jesus says, in the NIV, he says, ask, seek, and knock. The literal Greek means to continue, continue asking, seeking, and knocking. So here's what it says from the New Living Translation. Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. This is Jesus talking. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. Keep on keeping on. Pray, approach Jesus, and then continue to pray, asking, seeking, and knocking. Great people of great faith know that Jesus can, so they approach him. Second truth that great people of faith know is this. They wait knowing Jesus does. They know Jesus heals. They know Jesus saves. She knows Jesus heals and frees demon-possessed people. She has heard what others in the community saw. Matthew tells us that she is so persistent. As I said, the disciples said, God, our Jesus, she's annoying us. Send her away. They're asking Jesus to rebuke her. He ignores her. We're going to cover that in a moment. But she fights through this delay. 
Remember Matthew, I told you, said that she went to Jesus and he ignores her, just keeps on walking. And finally she falls at his feet and that's when he finally addresses her. But, but this is a process and, and she's not going to let the crowd push her away. She's not going to let the naysaying disciples push her away. She's going to be persistent. She's going to fight her way through all of that. But her miracle is not going to happen right yet. She waits through the delay. She's not going to go anywhere. She knows Jesus delivers people from demons. And can I, can I assure you this morning that great faith requires waiting? In fact, it becomes great faith when I choose to wait. Believing. Believing. Psalm 46, David says, be still and know that I am God. In Isaiah 40, verse 31, the prophet speaking for God says, But those who wait upon God renew their strength or get fresh strength. You see, miracles require the sovereign timing of God. That's that's God's business. My, My role is to pray and believe with faith. God's role is to make the miracle trans transpire but it requires him and it requires his timing because there is always God's going to do it the right way and if what I'm experiencing is for a purpose in this moment of something he's doing in me maybe he's preparing me for the miracle maybe he's preparing somebody else to respond to the miracle Maybe he's putting things into motion in the heavenlies and the unseen realm so that the miracle can happen, but it will happen his way his, in his timing. And so there is this point when I pray and I continue to pray that I actively wait. Waiting doesn't mean just flopping down on the couch and folding my arms and taking a nap until Jesus shows up. The word wait in those scriptures I just read to you is an active waiting. It means you're in process of still believing, still praying, still walking out your faith, still walking in relationship to the God who you pray to, and you're going to trust Him, His time, and the way that He wants to bring the miracle about. To be still literally means to cease your anxieties. So to wait, again, is not just to flop down and take a nap. It is to stop worrying about the situation. Now, that's in your soul. You're going to have to take those thoughts captive. I'm praying about it. I know Jesus can, and I know Jesus does. I'm going to trust. And I'm going to stop worrying about it. I'm going to stop being anxious about it. I'm going to trust Him to make it happen. It's our greatest demonstration of faith when we wait. So people of great faith, they pray knowing Jesus can do it. They know Jesus does do it. And then thirdly, they speak knowing what Jesus has done. They speak knowing what Jesus has done. Now this is where it gets interesting because we've, you've probably read that account that we read in Mark a few times before. And we've always wondered about this idea of how would Jesus, the Son of God... Why would he call a woman that he came to die for a dog? And we've just kind of usually glossed over that because we don't have any answers. <laughs> We're just really, you know. Um, so let's talk about that for a moment. And in it, we're going to find 
why Jesus was so impressed with her faith. She has heard that Jesus heals the sick, the lepers, the lame, and even the demon-possessed. Her faith in Jesus is knowing that he can, he does, and he has done it before. Jesus looks at the woman when he finally stops and draws his attention to her after she's fallen at his feet. And he says, I have been sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And it's not right to, to give the children's food to the dogs. So let's, let's think about that one for a moment. When Jesus says, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel, he's saying, I've come for Israel. This is Israel's time for salvation. Now, we know from the remaining of the Gospels and the, the remaining books of the New Testament that there comes a time for us Gentiles. But Jesus first was sent to the Jews. In fact, Paul, the great apostle, reminds us in Romans that the power of the gospel is for the salvation of everyone, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. What happens in the ministry of Jesus is that, for the most part, for the greater part, Israel rejects Christ at his first coming. There are those who believed. But in the greater whole, most of Israel rejected that Jesus was the Messiah that was, called, that, was, that was talked about. Then comes now our privilege. And you, you hear Paul, if you've been reading with us through the, 90 day, uh, through the first 90 days of the New Testament on, our, on the uh, Version app, you've been reading with us, we've been in Romans. And for a few chapters there, Paul talks about this idea that, that Jesus has, has brought salvation to the Gentiles to stir jealousy now in the hearts of his own people. That there's going to come a time when, as a whole, the nation of Israel will look and say, wait, that's what he does, and that's who he is, and then they call. We are, we are presently in, in what um, guys who study eschatology and, and the, season, the, the timings of Christ and his return, we are in what's called the Gentile age. There is a period of time reserved where Gentiles will still be being saved, but a, the focus, the spotlight of heaven in God's next move will be on the people of Israel. That's why we pray for Israel. That's why we as Christians align ourselves with Israel, both the redeemed and the unredeemed, those who have confessed Christ and those who haven't. We are allied with them. That is why our nation would always do well. That is why, though we didn't, I didn't vote for President Trump because I thought he was a, uh, a good Sunday school teacher or would make a great Sunday school teacher. He got some, got some issues. We all do. He's got some issues, I'll admit that. But he did some things that set America up. One of them was he had the courage to move our embassy from a secular city called Tel Aviv into the heart of God's land, Jerusalem. Because that's where it all happens when Jesus starts getting ready to come back. What's happening in the Middle East right now? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure how to pray. 
I really, I'm, 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 I, I don't know for sure. I, I'm praying for safety. I'm praying for peace. But at the same time, it's going to get worse. And it's all going to involve all of the earth, but there and all of these nations that are enemies of Israel. And Jesus is going to reveal himself. And they're going to call on Jesus now. And they're going to recognize he is, he has been that anointed one that has been sent. So how did I get there? Now, where were we? Um, so this Phoenician woman, let me see if I can figure out where. Oh, Jesus came for the Jews. So he says, it's not right then for me to throw my food, their food, to the dogs. And then she responds, but master, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs. And that's when Jesus says, wow, I am super impressed with your level of faith in this season of your life. Now, let me explain that for a moment. Did Jesus, the Son of God, literally call this woman a dog? Well, let's keep in mind, culturally, Gentiles were, were unholy to the Orthodox Jew. You didn't hang out with Gentiles. You didn't touch them. You didn't go through their cities. You, If you were traveling somewhere and there was a Gentile population, you went around to avoid becoming unclean. They would refer to Gentiles. Culturally, they would refer to them as dogs. But there's two words that are used in the, in the scriptures in the New Testament about dogs. Paul will use some references from time to time about enemies and some things like that. But there's, there's two words, and, and one of those words is, is the idea of a dog that's a scavenger. And they would be the types of dogs that would run in packs on the streets around Jerusalem and in the, the, the villages and the towns. And, and they would run in packs and they would, they would eat from garbage and they would, they would fight on the streets and they were violent and they were mangy and they were, they were dogs. And then there's a word that speaks of your cute little cuddly lap dog, a puppy. That's the word that's used in Matthew and in Mark. And what is a puppy? A puppy is, well, everybody loves puppies, right? Even the Grinch had a puppy. Everybody loves, a puppy is an object of affection. You may not even be a dog lover, but if you see a puppy, you're like, okay, I don't like dogs, so I'm not going to act like I like dogs. Wow, that thing's cute. If I was into dogs, I'd just pick that thing up and squeeze it. It's a, it's an object of affection. So Jesus is not calling her a mangy scavenger dog. He, he's referring to her as an object of affection. It's a house dog. It is a dog who you would feed the scraps from your table. Why? Because everybody deserves a fresh piece of chicken that's not out of a can. Right? Every puppy should have that privilege. So it's it's the picture that, he's, that he's, he's not rebuking her in that sense. He's, he's, what he's doing is he's drawing this great faith out of her. He's going to see where does she go with this. I've waited. I've acknowledged. Now let's see where she goes. He already knows what he's going to do. But he wants to see where she's going with this now. And she looks at him and she says, but even the dogs 
eat the crumbs that fall off the kitchen table. And the faith that is in that moment is this. She refused to accept that that was the final word because she knew Jesus can, Jesus does, he has done it before, I just need him to do it one more time. That was the faith that caught the attention of Jesus. When you're walking in great faith, you're going to learn to speak in faith. You're going to learn to speak the affirmations of faith while you're praying and while you're waiting. Your mind's going to play games on you. That double-minded thing, that's the enemy when James talked about it. You go in and you pray and you say, God, I'm, I'm praying for healing and I know you can heal. You've healed before. And then you walk out and you start doubting. Where does that come from? It comes from the mind. It starts planting doubt. The enemy's playground is your mind. And so he starts planting this doubt, and, and, and you've got to take those thoughts captive. And the way you're going to do that is you've got to replace them with what you know to be truth. Now, I'm not just walking around saying, I'm not talking about walking around saying, I am good, I am great, I am this, I am that. No, what I'm talking about is you get your mind renewed with the Scriptures, and you speak. Faith comes by hearing, the Scriptures tell us, and hearing by what? The Word of God. You can think you're hunky-dory and you're, and what was that guy that used to be on Saturday Night Live and doggone it, people like me. No, they may not. That may not be truth. But you can know what Jesus says about you. I am more than a conqueror. No weapon formed against me will ever prosper. This sickness will not be the end of me. By his wounds, I walked healed. I am the head and not the tail. I am above and not beneath because I am a child of God, a co-heir with Christ Jesus into his kingdom. And you speak those words of affirmation that are truth from God's word. Now, Proverbs says this, the power of life and death is in the tongue. Now, here's what I believe. I, I do not believe that I have the ability within my own tongue to materialize a cup of coffee as much as I would like another cup after losing the hour of sleep. I could confess a cup of coffee. A cup of coffee. I have coffee. Coffee, coffee, coffee. I don't think I've got the power in my tongue to do that. What the power of my tongue is, is to create an atmosphere in which God can bring life. It creates an atmosphere. In fact, that word life means to come alive. It doesn't mean something new. It means what's dead brought to life. Where my faith has been dead, where my faith has struggled, when I speak affirmations and truth and words of faith, faith starts to what? Rise. Faith becomes the atmosphere. That's why when we call for prayer at the altar, I don't come up and say, well, okay, if you want to take a shot at this, we're going to open this altar and and if you want to come and, and just see what God does and if he shows up, and you know, that's not going to help you receive anything. No, there's, a, there's an atmosphere of faith. When we go to pray here in a few minutes, I'm praying, have prayed this week that this teaching will, will build faith, will, will stir faith, will create an atmosphere of faith. And while we're praying down here, the worship team is going to be leading us in an atmosphere of faith as they lead us in a new song 
the miracles in the house or something like that. Something about <laughs> miracles in the house. It's all for the sake of the atmosphere in which faith is alive and God can respond. Amen. And we are prepared to receive. Two places I want you to see real quick and then I'm going to wrap up here. Romans 10, 19. Let's talk about this, this idea of confessing. If you confess with your mouth, Paul says, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. That's how you receive salvation. You come to the place that you're convinced in your heart, Jesus is the Messiah. He rose from the dead after first dying for my sins, and I confess He is Lord of my life. But notice the connection of confessing what you believe. That's what it means for words of affirmation. I do believe no weapon formed against me is going to prosper. Oh, they hurt, and they draw me weary, and they create anxiety and fear through seasons of my life, but, but they're not going to destroy me. I do believe that by the wounds of Jesus, I'm healed, spirit, soul, and body. You confess what you believe. But then how about this one, Mark chapter 11? Jesus says this, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if any of you says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes. There again, that's the whole issue is confessing what you believe. Do you believe that mountain can move? Now, what if the mountain doesn't move? Well, maybe God doesn't want to change geography right now. Maybe he's perfectly fine with the map as it is. But do you believe? Do you believe it could? Do you believe he could make it happen? You confess what you believe. You confess what you believe. Say this with me. I confess, I confess. What, I believe. what I believe. My words create an atmosphere. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I affirm what I believe what I believe is God's truth. I affirm it by speaking it over my life and my situation. So people with great faith, they pray knowing Jesus can do it. They wait knowing that he will do it. They speak knowing that he has done it. And they go knowing Jesus will. After Jesus commends her great faith, he tells her, now go back to your home. Your daughter's healed. Now she doesn't, all she has is Jesus' word on that. Remember, she's just met him. All she has is his word. She goes home believing that what he said is true. And when she gets home, boom, she finds her daughter sitting up in bed and she's healed. But you see, there's a time she goes. Not knowing, not seeing it yet. But she keeps on going to that. You see... Jesus has said it is done. So now she's not continuing to plead. She's not continuing to cry out. Now she's supposed to get up and walk this faith. So there comes a place then in, in our lives that when we have great faith, that means we're walking without seeing the miracle yet. We're walking in faith. We're walking believing that he does, has done, can and will. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith and not by sight. Great faith moves from just believing and hoping to actually walking in accordance with what we believe. 
I appreciate uh, Mima from time to time. Well, I appreciate her all the time. <laughs> I didn't structure that sentence correctly. But I'll, I'll ask her, I'll call her sometimes to check in on her and say, how are you doing? She'll say, I'm blessed and highly favored of the Lord. And she, you know, she's dealing with her things and her physical situation. But she says, I'm blessed and highly favored. That's true. No matter what x-rays show, she's covered in the blood. She's a child of God. She is who he says she is, and she is blessed and highly favored. So let me wrap it up. We have all been given a measure of faith, my friends. The scriptures tell us to all is given a measure of faith. What that means is we are given the ability to believe in God. And we are given the ability, well, first let me say it this way. We are given a God to believe in. To say I've been given a measure of faith means I do have a God to believe in. And to say that I have been given a measure of faith means I have also been given the ability to believe in that God. And my faith grows from that seed. How does it grow? As it did with this Gentile woman. Knowing Jesus can, knowing he does, knowing he has, and knowing he will. We really do all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's coming. But right now, I think we would all really want to hear him say, wow, I am super impressed with your level of faith in this season of your life. 